we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to the Wirecard Saga, a podcast with Tom Fox and Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director of Institutional Ethics and Integrity at Affiliated Monitors. Over this podcast series, we're going to take a deep dive into the Wirecard Saga to see where it may take us literally across the globe. Mikhail Ryder-Gordon and myself continue our exploration of all things Wirecard with our Who Watches the Watchers edition. We take a deep dive into why regulators were investing in Wirecard while regulating it, EY clams up, a plethora of whistleblowers, and investigating crimes or not. All in this episode, I know you will enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of the Wirecard Saga with uh, Mikhail Ryder-Gordon. Uh, first of all, uh, Michael, welcome back. And what do you have on tap today? <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Well, let's just open this episode with the following quote. Every time you think it cannot get worse, Wirecard is proving the opposite. Who said this? German Bundestag MP and member of the Parliamentary Investigative Committee into Wirecard, Florian Tonkar. And he made this statement just this past week. You can't make this stuff up. You really can't. And I know, listeners, at times this story really does sound like fiction. Unfortunately, it is well and truly nonfiction, and truth can hurt. So what prompted MP Tonkar to make this statement? Rafe Bowes, head of the German Auditor General's Supervisory Office, we all know it is office, caused, quote, astonishment, the Bundestag's official word, not mine, when he disclosed in an IC hearing this past Friday, that's December 11th, that he had purchased Wirecard shares for the first time at the end of April 2020. That's right. Long after the Sitar report, long after the FT expose had been published, the head of the regulatory body responsible for oversight of auditors of publicly traded companies purchased shares in Wirecard. Why? Because the price had dropped due to KPMG's preliminary report. It had just been issued. Bose also informed the IC that Opus employees only have to report share purchases, including from companies whose auditors they investigate, if the value of the stock package represents more than 5% of their assets. The IC said, uh, don't you think the mere possibility of personal enrichment through officials, Opus employees, 
Acquiring critical information from auditors related to companies they audit is what we might call politically explosive. Again, their words. Is the chair of the IC, Kay Gottschalk, who's with AFD, the business party, said he was appalled to learn that Bose sold the shares because, wait for this, listeners, because this is one of the impossible things you need to believe before breakfast. Bose sold his Wirecard shares on May 20th, one month later, 2020, the same day that Boffin formally informed his agency, Opus, about the content of the larger KPMG report and thus about the extent of Wirecard's problems. If it's any consolation to anyone, Bose lost money in this investment in Wirecard. MP Tonkar attempted to ascertain just when Bose received the information from Boffin relative to the hour he disposed of his Wirecard shares, but Bose clammed up and refused to answer the question. He also refused to tell the IC the exact size of the investment he had made. I told you, you cannot make this stuff up. Yesterday, December 14th, they suspended Harbos from his role at Opus whilst they investigate. I wonder if he's astonished by that. Then Boffin, the other regulator over Wirecard, let quietly slip to the IC that it had fired one of its employees last month because, uh, well, upon investigation... It turned out said employee had indeed violated disclosure rules, e.g. engaged in insider trading, of Wirecard shares. Three other Boffin employees remain under investigation. Now, the IC actually stated in their press release that Bose's ignorance of Wirecard's poor state as recently as April 2020 is significant because, in their minds, it explains why Opus twiddled their thumbs or as the IC said, it's no wonder that Bose and the office did not interpret the evidence about the KPMG report, which had already revealed that the main sources of profit and a full third of the balance sheet were based on fraud. It's a wonder they didn't interpret this correctly as recently as 2019. Bose's attempt to explain his trading behavior to the IC, he actually said this to them, quote, even I couldn't imagine that something like this could happen to a DAX company. No, why would a regulator ever suspect a company of engaging in fraud? The IC went on to grill the head of legal supervision of Opus within the German Federal Ministry of Economic Affairs and Energy, or known as BMWI, and her boss, who heads the department within BMWI, small, medium-sized enterprises, it, all about policy. And that person in turn reports directly to the Secretary of State, right? So IC calls in these two high-level officials with BMWI and says, why couldn't you control and regulate Opus? And Tonkar noted that investigations by Opus into an audit almost inevitably brings the auditors into contact with information about the company concerned. So he asked, why do the rules of procedure of office not provide for a reporting obligation for, say, their boss to own shares? The response? Well, office regulates itself for quality insurance. And Germany wonders why they can't quite break into the top tier as a global financial center. The hesitation by investors is not because of Wirecard. 
Wirecard is just symptomatic of some serious regulatory deficiencies in that jurisdiction. Now, the BMWI folks pointed the finger at the EU seriously, saying that the EU has said that the supervision of statutory auditors' final responsibility should lie with an independent authority. Therefore, it can't be bound by any possibly politically motivated in instructions, ergo, that removes BMWI from responsibility for supervising office. They said, no, no, the ministry only provides legal supervision. So they told the IC, quote, there is no body that stands above APIS and oversees the advisability of the administrative trade of APIS. Holy lack of oversight, Batman. But wait, there's more. Hold on to your seats, listeners. Because the BMWI proceeded to tell the IC that, oh, yes, there is a conflict of interest policy for APIS. It forbids APIS employees from investigating their former employers. Why? Because fully 60% of APIS staff come from the big four. Yeah. And as such, they're eligible for pensions that they accrued when they were at the accounting firms. So APIS's big conflict of interest policy? You can't investigate the particular big four firm you worked for in the past. Knowing how frequently employees within the big four move between the four firms, it's a wonder Opus has anyone who can investigate. After this revelation, German economy minister Peter Altmaier publicly declared that there would be an investigation not only into Bose and his wirecard day trading, but into Opus in general. Now, let's just pause here a moment, folks. Let's do a little comparative analysis of some of the conflict of interest slash code of conduct rules that other jurisdictions' audit regulators have to adhere to. As the German government invoked the EU, let's go ahead and start with the UK. I know, I know, falling off the cliff's edge in only a couple of weeks. But for the moment, and since 1973, the UK is still a member state of the EU. What sort of rules, if any, do those regulators have to adhere to? The UK's Financial Reporting Council has an employee code of conduct for all FRC that requires they foster a culture of impartiality, integrity, objectivity, for the benefit of its stakeholders and the public interest. Employees are forbidden from misusing information gained in the course of their service for personal gain or using uh, their position in the FRC to promote their private interests or those connected to persons, firms, businesses, or other organizations. They're required to report all conflicts of interest and even potential conflicts of interest in a real-time COI system maintained by the FRC's HR department. And they're prohibited from working on any matters where any such potential COI is identified. Breaches of their code of conduct, that can result in termination of employment, other disciplinary actions. And if they use any information obtained through their employment, they can be prosecuted under the Criminal Offenses Market Abuse Regulation under the Criminal Justice Act. Yeah. These rules for regulators responsible for oversights of auditors, they're not unusual. Singapore, similar rules, only theirs are enshrined in that country's Public Sector Governance Act. All public employees are subject to it, including those with the Accounting and Corporate Regulatory Authority, ACRA. Similar, Japan, CPA, AAOB, and FSA, same thing. Their review teams are precluded from trading in shares of companies 
audited by the firms they're supervising. In the U.S., you know, the SEC, ultimate oversight of the PCAOB and FSB, the list goes on. But Germany, they neglected to draft up such prohibitions and interpreted any sort of supervision of the regulators as being too political. They didn't pull office under their larger public servant laws. The government doesn't even have an OIG. And seemingly, it never occurred to the Ministry of Economic Affairs and Energy that there should be some mechanism by which to hold office employees accountable. Bose made some additional disclosures to the IC. He'd been asked why Oppis had not notified prosecutors or Boffin after the 2019 meeting with EY that raised all those whistleblower allegations. Bose said that the law requires auditors such as EY to ask audited companies to resolve inconsistencies. Now, if the company refuses, a notification must be made in accordance with Article 7. However, according to EY, Wirecard had agreed to contribute fully to the investigation, so problem solved. And as we know, remember back in Episode 8, the enablers? EY's anti-fraud practice had already warned EY's Wirecard audit team in 2017 and 2018 of red flag indicators. But the EY partners overseeing the Wirecard audit said, nah, we're not going to investigate. This part of Article 7 Right. It no longer took effect, Bose explained. In addition, Oppis is not responsible for such notifications. In fact, it was confirmed that in Germany, it's not definitively clear which authority is the right recipient for a notification under this Article 7. According to Oppis, depending on the nature and seriousness of the allegations, it could be the public prosecutor's office or the financial supervisory authority, Boffin. Hard to say which. No real clear directions available. Yes, says Bose. In retrospect, Oppis is now of the opinion that EY should have contacted the public prosecutor's office with such a report at that time because, well, Wirecard wasn't in fact cooperative. Instead, it kind of concealed its true financial situation to the best of its ability. But, but, he says, Codicil wasn't really Oppis's role. I mean, after all, at that time, Oppis was satisfied with the announcement of a thorough investigation of the events by EY. True, he admits, by mid-October 2019, eh, some more well-documented allegations had followed, but, you know, didn't Oppis as a result initiate a preliminary investigation against EY? Because, you know, now it saw suspicion of breaches of duty. But then it did diddle about for seven months before finally opening formal procedures to investigate breaches of duty by EY. Oppis's 28-page report to the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office, it only went in September of this year. Any excuses offered for the delay that his MP uh, Hans Michaelbach pointed out, if action against Wirecard and EY had been taken quickly the damage to the financial markets could still have been prevented. In addition to Bose, the IC had summoned Nath Conwin, head of Oppis's head of enforcement and market monitoring in the Department of Professional Supervision, essentially head of inspection and quality control, and colleague Martin Cox. According to Conwin, Oppis and Boffin apparently paid 
close attention to the telephone interview EY held with supervisory officers back in February of 2019, and along with others present at the EY meeting were Bose, Conwin, and Cox. Yep. In the meeting, the head of EY Germany told the regulators that EY was going to swiftly clarify the irregularities reported involving Wirecard Asia and Wirecard Middle East. In fact, EY apparently described precisely what the FT had been publishing. Conwin said his impression was that somebody's looking into this, so no need to worry. Assured, they all sat back and waited to hear back from EY. Only we know what happened with EY's investigation. And re-listen to episode eight if you've forgotten. Remember the German EY office shut down EY India's efforts? And remember they told the regulators all was tickety-boo? According to Cox, from Boffin's point of view, quote, the Singapore issue has been dealt with properly. Boffin then proceeded to issue its ban on Wirecard short sellers that same month. Oppis, Boffin acknowledged, yeah, okay, Wirecard's management had agreed uh, that the insinuations by the Financial Times had just been cooked up by short sellers in conspiracy with the journalists, so we were all in agreement at that time. IC Chair Gottschalk asked Conwin whether Boffin's decision had impacted their assessment within Oppis with respect to EY. Cox and Conwin said, wait for this, hmm, they had long assumed that irregularities in the audit of Wirecard AG's financial statements were, quote, regionally limited and, eh, of comparatively small sums. Quote, it didn't seem like anything special. It happens again and again that accountants make mistakes or actively cheat. What the... I can't even finish that sentence. Yeah, they conceded to the IC in retrospect. The clues from 2019 were more meaningful than they had interpreted them to be at the time. The IC demanded to know why, oh why, did Opus not reach out to counterparts in Singapore and seek assistance and coordinate with Boffin to investigate the allegations? Well, said Cox, we're reflecting on what we did and how we can increase our preventive surveillance. <laughs> what, a teachable moment? Is that what we're saying? One thing, uh, one change they intended to make, Opus intends to improve its press monitoring. Yeah, you'll hear why in a moment. You know, he didn't commit to the agency reading or acting on said press, just that they'd improve the monitoring of it. Let's turn back to EY for a moment. For those who missed the news, the former EY partner, Andreas Locher, he was one of the three partners responsible for leading the audits of Wirecard for the past five years. Okay. Recall when Wirecard fell to bits, Letcher joined Wirecard primary lender, Deutsche Bank, as head of accounting. And recall, Letcher had refused to testify to the IC because he's under investigation by Opus. And now by the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office for suspicions he violated his professional duties during the Wirecard audits and maybe did know EY was issuing factually incorrect audits for Wirecard. Well, the heat having been turned up on Locher, 
he's temporarily stepped aside from his Deutsche Bank role whilst the investigations proceed. Worst case scenario for Letcher and his fellow EY partners involved in Wirecard audits? Three years jail time. What the penalties against EY Germany may be, well, that remains to be seen. And Deutsche Bank? Hmm, beyond just possible concern about their recently hired executive, they may have some other worries with respect to Wirecard. Uh, apparently, that did not serve a sufficient warning to EY Germany, Letcher having to step aside and being investigated by two different agencies, because Letcher's former colleague, Christian Orth, reportedly called Opus and tried to ascertain from the person who answered the phone uh, exactly what did Opus's criminal complaint against him say uh, and, and the other partners. What, did, what does that complaint say? News of his phone call reached the ears of the IC, and an MP filed a criminal complaint against Ort for providing false testimony to the Bundestag IC. Why? Because just the other week, Orth had testified to the IC that he'd only rung Opus on the eve of his testimony at the direction of EY's counsel and supposedly only to find out who was leading the Opus investigation. Unfortunately, this contradicted what the Opus employee who fielded the call told the IC. So now Herr Orth is facing two separate criminal complaints. Looking good, EY. Way to demonstrate integrity, huh? Underscore why anyone should believe what you say? Good grief. Now, remember the 15 FIs that lent hundreds of millions to Wirecard just months before the company finally imploded? Well, not only is Deutsche one of the 15, they made quite a number of loans to Wirecard going back many years, as we discussed in episode 13. And um, some of these sizable loans, well, it turns out Deutsche may have forgotten to conduct due diligence before handing the money to Wirecard. And again, are we surprised? If we think about Deutsche and all the times in the past decade, they've been hauled by the scruff of the neck up by regulators for AML failures. I mean, really, the bank's fast and loose approach to due diligence with respect to Wirecard is hardly surprising. Remember, this is the, this is the FI that served as the European Correspondent Bank to FBME. I mean, set against that dirty standard, Wirecard could be mistaken for being only, what, sooty? Ah, so the IC has summoned seven additional witnesses to hearings scheduled for later this week. The lucky interviewees, a representative from the Bundesbank, a state secretary of the Federal Ministry of Finance, Wolfgang Schmidt, a representative of the Federal Chancellery, and three individuals from two consulting firms. Uh, so where is that going to take us? Hmm. Well, let's return for the moment to who's been minding the store or supervising the regulators of Germany. Remember in episode 11, a few weeks ago, when I briefly covered a scathing fast-track peer review report published by uh, the European Securities and Markets Authority, ESMA, and ESMA's report looked at just how well Boffin and FREP Remember, FREPS, the Financial Reporting Enforcement Panel, did or did not do in their handling of the Wirecard matter, right? Everything the IC has just been discussing. At that point, I promised we'd take a deeper dive into this 190-plus page report because it offers some interesting insights into Germany's regulatory landscape and is instructive in all of the missteps. I say instructive 
because the opportunities asthma missed, uh, the, the missed opportunities asthma unearthed in its evaluation provide lessons that are applicable not only to regulators around the world, but to private organizations, as they're not unique to public agencies. So, regulators, legislators outside of Germany, council compliance officers, heads up. This painful recounting of red flags ignored makes for valuable instruction. Let's start with the basis by which ESMA had authority to undertake a review of Germany and its regulatory response to Wirecard. The basis is an EU directive, specifically the EU Transparency Obligations Directive 2004-109-EC. Basically, we just call it the Transparency Directive. Now, for those of you not up on your European legislative process, a directive from the EU establishes certain minimum standards on a particular issue and then instructs its member states to enact legislation and transform that EU regulation into a national level set of laws to meet those minimum standards. Now, nothing prevents a state from enacting stricter legislation above and beyond the minimum regulations. The Transparency Directive set forth requirements for issuers whose securities are traded on regulated markets, right? They're listed. The regs include requirements such and when annual financial reports must be filed. You know, for instance, you can't fail to produce one later than four months after the end of your fiscal year. The directive, which was amended a few times, also requires that EU member states designate a state authority to regulate compliance by issuers and shareholders with the national laws that were enacted in response to the directive. Okay. Specifically, the directive instructs member states that whatever competent authority they have granted enforcement authority to should have the power to require issuers and shareholders to produce documents and information upon request, and that said agency or agencies hold the requisite powers to conduct on-site inspections, review allegations of market manipulation, e.g. fraud, reporting inaccuracies, and so on, and that the regulator have the capacity to verify compliance with the statutory requirements, that is, at minimum, the regulations found in the Transparency Directive. Now, it is against these minimum standards by which ESMA graded Germany's regulatory response to Wirecard. At the national level, Germany translated the Transparency Directive into state law, but took a slightly unusual approach to structuring regulatory oversight for compliance with said directive. It created a two-tier system. This, listeners, you will soon learn, created the first problem. The enforcement of financial information, or EFI as we call it, is split between two bodies in Germany. Let's start with the first one, FRAP. You all remember FRAP. FRAP's a private organization, not a public agency. They're contracted to the German government to examine the financial statement of issuers for compliance with the directives and Germany's accounting framework. And just as a buy and buy, that framework, um, basically companies whose debt or equity securities trade in a regulated market in Germany, right, are required to use IFRS in their consolidated accounts as required by the European Commission. Okay, and there's another set of regulations. But it's enough to note the directive requires adherence to international accounting standards and what is known as GLEFI, GLEFI, 
the ASMA issued guidelines on the enforcement of financial information. Okay, so FRAP is directed to enforce for this. Now, FRAP carves its examination teams up from 15 what they refer to as panel members, with a single examination team usually only comprising five members. FRAP's remit is to examine issuers' financial statements for compliance with the accounting framework. And it accomplishes this purely by the unenforceable agreement of its members, that is, the issuers. That's right. FRAP's examinations rely entirely upon the voluntary cooperation of its member companies, the issuers. FRAP even told ESMA, well, that because participation is voluntary, it, it believes issuers are more willing to cooperate. Huh? FRAP is not designated as the competent authority for taking measures when FRAP discovers an issuer has infringed on the counting standards. Is this a problem? Oh, very much so. FRAP's goals regarding enforcement are specifically to, one, enhance the quality of financial reporting of listed companies, strengthen the capital market's trust in the accuracy of financial reporting, and avoid future accounting errors. Now, as you'll learn in a moment, FRAP's goals are not really fully aligned with how German law views FRAP's role. FRAP can but has discretion in this, refer a case to Boffin if it finds accounting errors and the issuer accepts the finding. If the issuer doesn't accept the findings by FREP, it can also be referred to Boffin. If the issuer refuses to cooperate with FREP, again, it can, at its discretion, refer to Boffin. If Boffin has substantial doubts about the accuracy of the examination results or the proper conduct of the exam by FREP, or if Boffin is already conducting special examinations with the same subject, the same issuer, in other words, it can take over an examination from FREP. So Boffin is the second tier of EFI in Germany. And you know, we talk about Boffin fairly, huh, what, weekly, led by Herr Hofeld and forever squeaking that the wire card debacle on their watch was not their fault. Boffin, under the EFI system, consistent with the Transparency Directive is the public authority under Germany's two-tier system. Now, just a quick structural lesson here. The Ministry of Finance, led by Chancellor hopeful Olaf Scholz, sits at the top of the pyramid. And he's a political appointee tied to the fact that his party is a member of the ruling coalition. Within the MOF is the Federal Office of Economics and Export Control. Right? You just heard about a couple of their folks testifying to the IC. The OEEC has within it the Opus AOB, that is the Auditor Oversight Board, the head of which, Herr Bose, has just been suspended. And also under the MOF, but running parallel to the OEEC and Opus, is Boffin. Both report up to the MOF. Both FRAP and Boffin oversee some 548 issuers who are subject to German accounting enforcement. Now, recall Boffin has additional remits that expand the number of entities it holds enforcement powers over. Whenever an error is discovered by FRAP or Boffin, and again, they're looking at the accounting standards, but the auditor has not qualified its opinion, then FRAP or Boffin 
can refer the case and the auditor to the auditor oversight body. But within the AOB is OPIS responsible for oversight of public accountants and auditors. And OPIS, it was clarified back in 2016, that agency can share information with FREP and BOF in respect to any infringement it encounters when examining auditors under their control. Problem is, communication appears to have broken down. It's useful to understand how FREP determines what issuers to examine, when and how. Boffin can request an examination, but again, only request, not order, and is subject to the legal requirement that Boffin has specific indication of material infringement of accounting requirements. Again, not fraud, not laundering, only accounting requirements. Boffin can identify companies it regards as risky and ask FREP to include them in one of their pools for assessment, typically what's known as its abstract risk pool. And FREP has essentially three examination pools from which it draws. It's risk-based with cause, e.g. a concrete risk. That's pool number one. It's general pool, which is a full coverage examination on just a rotating basis. And it's abstract risk pool, which identifies issuers with certain industry-based risk factors or enforcement priorities. This last population can include anything from issuers with IPOs or exceptional acquisitions to delayed publication of annual financial reports to those who stood out in the last examination and so on. One of the ways for an issuer to find itself included in FREP's abstract risk pool is via FREP's um, exceptional standards, if you will. So, for instance, a review of media, e.g. market reports, newspapers, etc. Only what ESMA found was that FREP admitted its media cuttings department, the people responsible for analyzing and forwarding relevant news and public information about German issuers under supervision of FREP, it didn't include any international newspapers. It didn't include the world's only global financial newspaper, the Financial Times. It didn't include any media information that was published outside of Germany or in German. Seriously. An insular lot content with local reporting. Imagine if the SEC only read the Virginia Pilot or the Roanoke Times and the Annapolis Gazette and the Baltimore Sun. ASMA was flabbergasted and made a point in their 100-plus recommendations that FREP broaden its horizons. Okay, so back to these risk pools. ASMA examined FREP's risk pools and identified that on average, FREP selects approximately 95 issuers per year in total for examination, so all three pools total, and assumes that only 80 will complete, be completed, as at least some of those selected will delist, fall into insolvency, or otherwise disappear before FREP arrives. Within this annual group are issuers falling within one of the three pools, but only about 21% of issuers examined from, say, 2017 to 2020 were in one of the risk pools. Within the specific abstract risk pool, a random, random folks, 40% are selected for an unlimited scope examination. 
ASMA came to the conclusion that Wirecard should have been concluded in FREP's abstract pool risk uh, between 2015 and 2017. ESMA found that FRAP's model for examination selection was deeply flawed, as even if Wirecard had been included in that abstract risk pool in those years, it only stood a 40% chance of being selected for examination. Or to put it another way, it held a 60% probability of not being selected based on risk. <laughs> Them's good odds if you're a criminal enterprise. FREP mildly fussed back that Wirecard could have been selected just off rotation or random sampling. Uh, yeah, but highly unlikely statistically. FREP did select Wirecard based on abstract risk in 2019 for its review of its 2018 annual financial report. Why did FREP include the company this time? Wait for it. One, unusual transactions. Two, outperforming three, special industry risk, and four, poor corporate governance. As if none of these factors were present in all the years prior. ESMA helpfully pointed that out in its report, too. ESMA dug deep into the statistic of FREP's risk pools and identified some additional disturbing facts. FREP's model does not assign a grade or rank to issuers within the risk pools. This means that an issuer which finds itself included in one of the risk pools predicated on only one risk factor has the same probability, that's that 40%, of being selected as an issuer with multiple risk factors. So a collection of issuers with different risk profiles, but all with the same chance of examination by FREP. Worse, ESMA identified that predicated on FREP's approach, the selection of issuers based on risk in Germany between 2014 and 2015 represented only 15% of the total number of issuers compared, ready, to 64% on average in other jurisdictions. You see, Germany, you can advertise yourself as a desirable place for conducting business. Low chance of regulatory oversight. Due to FREP's selection model between 2017 and 2020, the average number of issuers in Germany being examined only rose to 21%. Ooh, still falling well short of 64% in other countries. And ESMA's guidance to EU member states directs them to achieve at least a 50% threshold. Is it any wonder Wirecard carried on so long? Let's climb back into that time machine we like to use and whiz through a brief history of Wirecard as seen or ignored by the eyes of FREP, Boffin, and even Opus. Wirecard is founded in 99, Braun buys it in 2002, and we have a future episode dedicated to just how the little Austrian who could came up with the money for that purchase. Wirecard joined the German stock market in 2005 via its reverse acquisition of Infogenie, the company offering telephone hotlines, first red flag. Wirecard goes on its first buying spree in 2006, acquires what becomes Wirecard Bank that same year, as such, it goes through a perfunctory approval process with the regulators. It obtains licenses from MasterCard and Visa to issue credit cards and handle money on behalf of merchants. It gets included in the TechDAX Index also in 2006. And then the wheels start to wobble a bit. How? By 2008, only six years after Braun forms Wirecard, Wirecard AG, 
and only two years after receiving the licenses from the major card issuers, Visa and MasterCard fine Wirecard for falsifying the nature of transactions to processing for them and reports the company to U.S. FinCEN. Meanwhile, Wirecard executives, Herr Trotman, Nokelman, Marsalek, Lay, etc., Braun, busy overseeing the growth of dozens of the shell companies that will become clients of Wirecard, right? Wookiee is created, online binary option, gambling site revenue, it's pouring in, into and through Wirecard accounts. And that same year, 2008, the head of a German shareholder association publishes an attack on Wirecard, alleging irregularities in the company's accounts. FREP launches an indication-based examination into Wirecard's 2007 financial statements. That is, an investigation predicated on a red flag, the Shareholder Association asserting accounting irregularities. But FREP discontinues the examination due to a lawsuit focused on Wirecard's financial statements. And recall, FREP's remit is to confirm the issuer is abiding to the accounting rules, not to examine if the transactions being recorded are the result of crime. So oversight bodies are not scrutinizing Wirecard forensically. Two years after this, early 2010, U.S. regulators indict several parties related to Wirecard for money laundering. Remember Michael Olaf shoot in Florida? In the complaint, Wirecard is repeatedly named. Fair to say, U.S. Secret Service, DOJ, and or FinCEN let Boffin know of the laundering charges implicating Wirecard. Yep. And also in 2010, Visa and MasterCard fine Wirecard again for the same infractions, concealing illegal transactions it processed on behalf of dodgy merchants. But Boffin and Frapp, as you'll learn, aren't big on reading anything published outside of Germany. So presumably they don't see it. Two more years elapse, and hedge funder John Hempton publishes to the marketplace reports alleging Wirecard's acquisitions in the APAC region are rubbish. This is 2012, folks. Boffin and Frep don't read market reports. Seriously, they don't. This is what they tell ESMA. Independent of this information, Frep carries out an unlimited scope examination of Wirecard's 2011 annual financial report. No errors found. Woohoo! In 2013, Sadabank, see episodes five and seven, is very publicly implicated in running a global money laundering and sanctions busting scheme. Tied directly to Sadabank and its owner, Georgiev, Wirecard exec, Nokelman, and key Wirecard accounts with Sadabank are noted. Prep and Boffin, nothing. Short sellers again allege fraud, nothing. 2014, FinCEN, Bans FBME Bank for being a major laundering concern, and again, Wirecard and its accounts with the banks are publicly cited. Same year, FREP selects Wirecard for an examination based purely on a rotation for an unlimited scope examination. EY gives an unqualified audit opinion for Wirecard's 2014 accounts. Short sellers again publish in the marketplace suspicions of Wirecard financial claims. Nothing. In 2015, FREP informs Boffin it has selected Wirecard for examination and asks if there are any impediments to such an examination. In other words, hey, Boffin, are you already looking at these folks? Boffin says, nope, no impediments to the examination. Go ahead. So FREP commences the examination of 2014 in April 2015. But that same month, 
a short seller makes public specific allegations around wire card acquisition deal in India. And at the end of the month, Dan McCrum of the Financial Times would launch his first story on the FT blog on what would become this five-year series raising questions about Wirecard. FREP doesn't send its first questions to Wirecard for the 2014 exam until July 2015. A second article is published on the FT blog in November 2015. Wirecard doesn't submit responses to FREP's initial questions until January 2016, and still nothing. One month later, Zatara Research, that short seller, releases the first of three damning reports on Wirecard, alleging money laundering, corruption, fraud. Wirecard's share price tumbles 25%. In other words, the rest of the market is watching and reading and takes the Zatara report seriously. Boffin becomes aware of the Zatara report shortly after its release that February. Zatara publishes two additional reports by mid-March 2016, and Wirecard even publishes a response statement to it, to the Zatara report. Boffin launches an investigation into the short sellers. The FT and German media outlet Der Spiegel publish more damning articles about Wirecard, and this time, at least their Spiegel's article gets writ- read because the Ministry of Finance is reading it and asks Boffin to report on the situation, wants to know, well, what measures has Boffin taken in response to all of this? Boffin forwards the Der Spiegel article to Frepp and asks Frepp to take into consideration the allegations contained in the Zadara report in Frepp's ongoing assessment of Wirecard's 2014 financial statement. By May 2016, FREP has held a meeting specifically to discuss these articles and now an allegation from a whistleblower that has come in about Wirecard. FREP's conclusion? No, no reason to launch an indication-based examination. Just have Wirecard address select issues as part of the ongoing examination. We'll look at the whistleblowers in a moment here. But yeah, FREP says, yeah, and we already have this 2014 exam going. We'll just, you know, we'll, we'll look at that sort of maybe. No, no special exam needed. Now, notwithstanding the informants the Financial Times and Der Spiegel have developed with respect to Wirecard, and those individuals are feeding select documents to the journalists for those outlets, let's count how many whistleblowers there have been. And note, We don't have the specific number of whistleblowers that may have contacted Wirecard's compliance or legal department internally. We can probably assume there were at least a few. We are discussing only external whistleblowers who contacted Boffin or FREP or other German regulatory body. The first whistleblower contacts FREP in May 2016. This is followed by another whistleblower in late September 2016. The second one focuses largely on the receivables and payables related to Wirecard's acquiring businesses and relate to the company's 2015 balance sheet numbers, questioning the figures. The whistleblower also directs FREP to the FT series and provides link. FREP discusses these at length, looks at the allegations at a meeting they hold in October 2016, but again they demur on launching an indication-based examination. Instead, they hold a working meeting with Wirecard and EY. 
By December 1, 2016, Frappus issued their examination results of those 2014 financials and found that Wirecard's accounting is all tickety-boo. In early 2017, another media outlet, German publication Manager Magazine, publishes allegations against Wirecard, again questioning doubtful accounting practices, lack of transparency. And they closely parallel what that whistleblower in September said. Back in 2016, Boffin tells FREP about the article and asks if FREP considered this in the 2014 examination. FREP asks and goes to Wirecard and says, uh, can you provide some information specific to the allegations? Wirecard provides some vague explanations, pointedly ignores the real questions about the nature of its rolling security reserve receivables, some 250 million euros. FREP looks at what it received back discusses it and decides, yeah, there's insufficient evidence to indicate accounting infringement. Frep lets Boffin know the outcome, and Boffin says, uh, okay, no need for a request-based examination then. Here was Boffin's reasoning, and I'm quoting here. This is their reasoning. The fact that the consolidated financial statements would not communicate the business of Wirecard in any intelligible manner does not constitute an accounting infringement in the absence of any relevant legal standard. Hold that thought, folks. The FT publishes 13 more articles on Wirecard and in December 2018 identifies Marcus Braun as owning some 7% of the company, valued at 1.6 billion euros, and that he has pledged almost half of that stake for a loan from a mystery lender in order to make other investments without touching his Wirecard stake. Whistleblower number three appears in January 2019. This whistleblower sends Boffin a copy of the Rajan and Tan report. You know, the one that disclosed the fraud and money laundering going on out of Wirecard Asia. Boffin concludes that due to its confidentiality duties, it cannot, that's right, cannot forward a copy of the Rajan and Tan report or the whistleblower's allegations to FREP. Because according to Boffin's interpretation of the law, they need the consent of the anonymous whistleblower. A month later, Boffin launches an investigation into market manipulation and at least begins exchanging information with the Singaporean supervisory authorities. And they do request their assistance in investigating suspicious transactions and the fictitious contracts. But the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office, they don't launch a criminal investigation because as they see it, Despite Wirecard Asia being a subsidiary of Wirecard AG, the potential misconduct is somehow isolated, and how they know this without investigating is a mystery, and didn't occur in Germany's jurisdiction. Whistleblower number four appears in April 2019. Number five, six, and seven, October 2019. Whistleblower 8 sends information to Boffin. Whistleblower 9 sends allegations to Boffin in May of 2020, which are forwarded to FREP. And whistleblower number 10 squeaks in just before Wirecard's implosion, sending FREP yet new information on June 8, 2020. Ten separate external whistleblowers, multiple short seller reports, many running in excess of 50 pages of detailed analysis, investigative reporters publishing articles with documentation received from informants, all going back years. Not their remit. 
The primary allegations made against Wirecard between 2014 and 19 were Wirecard's third-party acquiring partners' revenues and assets and liabilities in the acquiring businesses were fraudulent. The company's acquisition of Indian businesses involved self-dealing and subsequent round-tripping of payments. Wirecard Asia was involved in fictitious contracts and more round-tripping of payments, large-scale money laundering, poor know-your-customer procedures, masking the true nature of credit card payments to conceal illicit transactions, faking sales and profits for its card systems, and questionable accounting practices with respect to liability reporting related to its subsidiaries. In 2015, FREP received that copy of that Zotero report and from Boffin, as well as the article from Spiegel, and did nothing. It looked at the allegations, and it looked at the ongoing assessments, and said, yeah, well, you know what? Zatara research is just to benefit short sellers, even though it alleged transnational money laundering in support of organized crime. And Boffin's already looking at this. The reports, well, they're just repeating stories of crimes that had already been reported, particularly that whole money laundering thing. And the auditor has signed off on unqualified opinions for Wirecard's 2015 financial statements. So they determined we shouldn't bother. We shouldn't bother with these allegations. We shouldn't bother them to an examination. As I said in the introduction, we can ask Mikhail, Ryder, Gordon, and, course, and myself Wirecard are going to be taking to a deep dive on the Wirecard case the over the next several and it's weeks. All okay. I hope you will join Estimates us again. This special podcast series will focus on fraud, the events uh, on the ground and each the week, and then we're going to take a deep dive. To Some of the topics we're going to cover include Germany Inc., the regulatory response, what this means for the overall fintech and it isn't until late EU regulatory May world and a variety of other interesting angles to the Wirecard case. The I hope you will stick with us throughout this series. Bavaria I know you will find it incredibly enjoyable as is the this is one of the largest frauds with uh, since the Enron Worldcon days and the largest accounting fraud in Germany since World War II. It's going to be a ton of fun. Thanks again for listening. Uh, please leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate that on iTunes. Wirecard defines itself as a financial company with the meaning within the meaning of the German Money Laundering Act and thus as an obliged entity under the AML laws. Huh. They're probably under the supervision of the federal state of Bavaria, in Germany's Federation of States. It's like saying the FI is subject to state oversight, not federal. This suggests this discussion between the district government, Boffin, and the Ministry of Finance, that nobody knows who has responsibility for money laundering oversight. This suggests that no regulator within Germany had ever conducted AML testing of Wirecard. Otherwise, they'd already know who had jurisdiction as the AML regulator of the company. Remember back in episode five where I reported that Germany's FIU had received in excess of a thousand reports on Wirecard? Some of which the FIU is said to have referred to the Munich Public Prosecutor's Office, but not to any supervisory body that would have then tested Wirecard for compliance with German AML regulations. Boffin, despite being an integrated regulatory authority with responsibility for supervising banks, FIs, etc., told ESMA that it doesn't have procedural or legal impediments for the transmission of information within the agency 
It even has a whistleblower unit that forwarded information to the EFI team, or can if it's relevant. But it believes itself precluded from sharing any of this information with FREP. Moreover, FREP asserts that because their enforcement remit is focused solely on the accounting accuracy of issuers, allegations such as KYC and conduct of pre-acquisition of due diligence by an issue or, or the value of the goodwill an issuer recognizes for an acquisition or verifying, in fact, that an acquisition actually exists as an entity, it's not for them to examine. It's out of scope. ESMA did not agree with these arguments and didn't agree that they were sufficient to support the decision FREP made. FREP told ESMA, well, there is a high probability that FREP will receive incorrect information and falsified documents if top management itself is involved in the fraud at an issuer. FREP can't verify whether a contract or accounting evidence is genuine since FREP's not authorized to contact third parties with such a request due to FREP's confidentiality requirements. And likewise, third parties, well, they're restricted. They can't support us, FREP, with confidential information. You heard this correctly, listeners. FREP can't even perform the most basic of auditing practice, obtaining independent verification of figures from a third party. For instance, contacting an issuer's bank to receive a copy of the issuer's bank statements to confirm claim balances. Nope, not FREP's job. FREP went on to tell ESMA that it doesn't have the resources to perform forensic examinations required to investigate fraud perpetrated by senior management. And it wouldn't, would it? FREP's entire budget for special examinations, only 400,000 euros. That was in 2018, down from 600,000. Oh, staffing, remember the five total of 15, 16 staffers dedicated to examiners? Yeah, although three are said to have attended a, over a period of years at least two whole days of fraud awareness training, that's something. Yeah. The history of German regulators and Wirecard is a litany of missed opportunities, missteps, and presumptions that someone else was paying attention. Back in early 2017, the Bundesbank and, Bundesbank and Boffin held discussions to determine if Wirecard should be classified as a financial holding company under EU law. They decided, nah, probably not. And because of this decision, Boffin would not have powers of intervention for the greater Wirecard group as a whole. Remember the statement from Boffin I quoted to you earlier about opaque financial statements not constituting an accounting infringement? ESMA rightly slammed Boffin for this. Had they correctly concluded that opacity in financial statements is worth scrutiny by regulators, maybe the Wirecard debacle would have stopped three years earlier. The whole thing, a slow movement beginning all the, going all the way back, really, from Singapore, Dubai, bureaucratic, slow-moving, painful to watch the missteps and the regulators' assumptions. The time is on their side. Boffin copies FREP. FREP tells Boffin, we're waiting. Eh, we're waiting on the KPMG report. But that isn't until April 29th, 2020. The ASMA report catalogs a litany of deficiencies and failures, some beyond Boffin and FREP's control, in that German law dictated some of this limited scope that hampered them. But ESMA has already looked at Germany's financial regulatory system for conformance to the Transparency Directive 
all the way back in 2017 and found it wanting. Only the Germans did nothing about it, despite the centrality that GLAFI to enforcement of financial information is. is. Boffin fails to comply with GLAFI because they can't require an issuer to reissue financial statements. There is no correction, and that corrective information, if it is made, it's never publicized. German law doesn't allow it to be publicized. So the market is none the wiser. Out of all 27 member states, only Germany failed to fully transpose the transparency directive into their domestic legislation. In 2018, Frepp and Boffin discussed approaching the relevant German ministries to address the failure of the current legislation, and then decided, eh, nah, system's working as it is. What could go wrong? <laughs> okay, listeners, there is so much more to the ESMA report, but we've exhausted our time. We'll be back next week to take a hard look at online gambling and porn clients that sustained Wirecard for all those years, and of course, to bring you all the latest developments from the Bundestag Investigative Committee. Here's a teaser. The IC has been asking the German government about Wirecard's financial relations with foreign mercenary groups. <laughs> That's fun. My thanks, as always, to host Tom Fox, Compliance Evangelist, and to the Compliance Podcast Network, honored by W3 as one of the top podcast networks in the country. You're definitely in the right place, listeners. I'm Mikhail Ryder-Gordon with Affiliated Monitors. I'll see you next week on Lies, Spies, and Corporate Crimes, The Wirecard Saga. I hope you will join us again. This special podcast series will focus on the events uh, on the ground and each week, and then we're going to take a deep dive. Some of the topics we're going to cover include Germany, Inc., the regulatory response, what this means for the overall fintech and EU regulatory world, and a variety of other interesting angles to the Wirecard case. I hope you will stick with us throughout this series. I know you will find it incredibly enjoyable as this is one of the largest frauds uh, since the Enron Worldcon days and the largest accounting fraud in Germany since World War II. It's going to be a ton of fun. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Please leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate that on iTunes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.